0: Hello, I'm Lauren Brooks, Associate Curator for Modern and Contemporary Collections at the Getty Research Institute. Welcome to Art and Ideas. I'm your host for a three-episode series about poetry and visual art.
1: African American history is American history. You can't tell it without talking about the contributions, the questions, the very heart of the creativity of african-american culture
0: in this episode i speak with kevin young director of the national museum of african-american history and culture kevin young thinks a lot about how music visual art pop culture and poetry are linked in his role as museum director and his life as a poet He draws out vital relationships like those between the blues and poetry or the cakewalk and black Twitter. His creative and nuanced understanding of the history and culture of African-American life comes through every time we talk. Kevin is the Andrew W. Mellon director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture and is a recipient of numerous awards and honors, including the Gray Wolf Press Nonfiction Prize, the Penn Open Book Award. And he was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. He is also the poetry editor of The New Yorker. In this episode, I speak with Kevin about how Black American culture is visible and invisible and where he finds inspiration. Welcome, Kevin Young, to the Getty Art and Ideas
1: podcast. Would you want to start this conversation with a a poem you've written? Sure. This is a poem from my book, Stones, my latest book, and it's called Egrets. It's set in Louisiana, where both my parents are from. Egrets. Some say beauty may be the egret in the field who follows after the cows, sensing slaughter. But I believe the soul is neither air nor water, not this winged thing, nor the cattle who moan to make themselves known. Instead, the horse's Standing almost fifteen, hands high. Like regret they come, most the time, when called. Hungry, the greys eat from your palm. Tender-toothed, their surprising, plum-dark tongues. Flashing quick and rough as a match. Striking your hand, your arm, startled into flame.
0: That was wonderful. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks. I was reading uh, some of your poems, and I was like, research is so important to your work. And sometimes people don't understand that poetry actually can require research. Sure, yeah. Because it's, for many people, I guess it's such a reduced form that Mm -hmm. they may not understand that the reduced form comes from thinking of words as sort of loaded objects.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think of it as condensed, not necessarily reduced, but also Mm -hmm. expansive. And that's one of the pleasures of poetry and that's sort of um, things that make it unique, I think, is it's both really tight and has to be. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: I think the best poems zoom out somewhere. They take a simultaneously close shot and then a kind of, you know, aerial view. Yeah. And thinking about poetry as, as a structure
0: too and the structure of, of your poems I mean it's it's really thought about how did you develop that or did it come naturally the form which you write
1: I you know practice not at all I just woke up one day like this <laughs> no, <good. laughs> the work I've been doing it long enough that I don't totally it's hard for me to point at my origins or if I do I'm probably obscuring some that I don't even know but I think the most obvious ones for me, are the kind of talk that I grew up hearing. Both my parents are from Louisiana, and it's both the things they said uh, and the things my relatives said, but also the things they didn't say. And, you mm-hmm. know, the way that Miles Davis is playing the notes, but also the silence mm-hmm. in a silent way, I think always was important to me. And one aspect of that is making sure the page and the sounds kind of unify or unite or coordinate somehow. Uh, Some of this surely came from a teacher I had named Denise Levertoff, a wonderful poet who wrote some of the best pieces about what it meant to write what she called organic form. But she also talks about the line. And Mm -hmm. in class, there were grown folks in there. I was fairly young, Mm -hmm. but other people, you know, had kids and lives and, you know, she would stop you cold no matter who you were if she thought you weren't reading your line breaks right. And she'd then say, you know, the page is a score. And this idea that the reader is a conductor, I took really seriously. And I think I already thought, but she articulated it better than I could. And the idea that poems are made up out of speech, I learned from people she learned from, like William Carlos Williams, but also Langston Hughes and Gwendolyn Brooks and people who were really... I think sonically able to capture the way that black folks speak and if you read something like Montage of a Dream Deferred you see that condensed language those kind of American and African American haiku and I think that always charmed me always made me feel like it got to the heart of the matter and there was always a way that that's the point is to sort of see that I would also be remiss if I didn't mention Lucille Clifton, who picked Mm -hmm. my first book. She's really reaching for large things in these little mini moments, let's call them. And uh, that's sort of what life feels like to me and and what aspects of thinking about black culture, these moments of improvisation or yearning or achievement, they happen and then they connect to this larger flow Mm -hmm. that we're all in. You said the whole thing,
0: Kevin. You said the whole thing, silence and speech. And for me, what came to mind is, in terms of painting, positive and negative space, the whole thing. Just because it's blank canvas doesn't mean that's not a form of communication. Sure. And so for me, it's this connection of poetics, the visual, and then you have the language. But if you understand the translation, you're closer to the ways in which not only mediums speak, but how people speak through their craft.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and a lot of the artists you're talking about are interested in notes and minimalism, but also the ways that a line, a color, a black mass, a moment speaks very largely. Mm-hmm.
0: And so when you said music, or there's a musicality, or that the lines, I don't think you said sing, but lines do sing in terms of poetry, and the blues, can you explain
1: the importance of the blues to your work? Sure. You know, the blues was a form I you know grew up hearing with my father's records, all of which I still have. He was a fan of the blues and Zydeco, which my grandfather, his father played. I still have my grandfather's fiddle. So music was something that coursed through that family, though my dad couldn't sing a lick. <laughs> um, and so for me, the blues offered a real chance to think about something intimate, personal, but not necessarily strictly autobiographical. Like you could talk about things using what I ended up calling the blues correlative, you know, like you could talk about pain through talking about the river or the train or the ways that the American landscape offered you shorthand to access these moments. That kind of condensing is really Mm -hmm. what attracted me to the blues, I think. But it was also a sound. I was really interested in the country blues when I started writing a book called Jelly Roll of Blues, my third book of poems. And it was always called that. It was always these kind of little musical moments of heartbreak. It had that blues echo. You know, when I started to write about Louisiana again, I had written about it in my first book, but I was writing these poems that would eventually become Dear Darkness about halfway through my father died. And so, you know, there was blues just beyond blues. And so for me Mm -hmm. to be able to use this form, which thinks about humor and tragedy mixed together, inform not only those poems, but a kind of outlook, I guess. And I always think about Ralph Allison saying, it's figuring the jagged grain. You know, you're kind Mm -hmm. of worrying a thing till you can, if not get past it, then sort of live with it. And that kind of naming pain to get past it was really a powerful part of the blues legacy to me music still is the thing that can soothe me so i keep returning to it
0: what a wonderful thing what a wonderful thing to find sanctuary in words
1: well and breath and and beats and song it's almost anthropological
0: the blues <laughs> that sort of mining of culture
1: right <laughs> well I, I yeah i think of it more like um from the other side i mean i have you know, huge problems with anthropology myself, but <laughs> that's another <laughs> podcast. But, um, you know, like uh, doing bunk and thinking about fakes and some of the histories of the con man and the exhibiting of people and, and the kind mm-hmm. of close links between that and the Harvard that I went to that had Louis Agassiz as one of its mm-hmm. uh, progenitors of the American version of anthropology, which of course believe that there were two separate origins of black people. We were a separate species. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to <laughs> just be <laughs> like, oh yeah, anthropological, uh, you know? And I also think about Baraka's Blues People, which I think is a book that's trying to understand how did we get here? Mm-hmm. You know, How did this sense of Americanness tie intimately to blackness, even though Baraka sees them as somewhat separate in that, book mm-hmm. but i was heartened that he had a footnote in one of his later later books you know that said you know i actually realize now that you can't have this americanness without african-americanness and of course i started to think that a long time ago probably was born thinking that in some way but i mm-hmm. i think once i started writing about that in the gray album that's how i started refining thinking about the origins of black culture and american culture and how intertwined they were
0: it's interesting to think that those kinds of investigations of Americanness and African Americanness, right? Albert Murray, or maybe Baraka, that we are still so how can I put this? That it's still very early since emancipation by which we can still just need to explore these things that should have been done a long time ago. That the history of segregation and enslavement are still right here before us. That in the 1960s, this kind of examination is going on, you know, sort of claiming.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well said. I mean, I think that there's such a rich, important moment to still be talking about. And I just have been fortunate to be at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, and that's its assumption. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a real treat to be at a place that, and I think has changed that conversation and helped people understand the ways that African-American history is American history. You can't Mm -hmm. tell it without talking about the contributions, the questions, the very heart of the creativity Mm -hmm of African-American culture.
0: And the idea that now blues is American culture and that, you know, so many other uh, cultures in America see the blues and jazz as a sort of American classic music, but the origin is a people trying to process
1: their reality. Do you see that as a contradiction? Well, I would say even they're often protesting their reality in ways that can be Guised but also guided by you know, what's going on. And it's fascinating to look back at the ways that often say white listeners or even white slave holders didn't understand they were being mocked or talked about or that the enslaved had something to say back. And things like the cakewalk or the spirituals, you know, and the cakewalk being a dance where people were parodying ballroom dancing, European style ballroom mm-hmm. dancing in the Americas which then went over and they performed cakewalks for the queen and things like that, Mm -hmm. you know, are really fascinating to me because you have a real, uh, I think Du Bois would call it a veiled experience, but I think it's masked. It's, it's performative. It's a wink and a nod. It's black Twitter before there's black Twitter, you know? (laughs) And so to me, there's a kind of Codedness, as you said. And in the Grey album, I was really interested in exploring those codes, starting with the spirituals and the way they were codes for escape, and then all the way down mm-hmm. to hip hop and the way those are a different kind of codes. And sometimes it's escapism. And sometimes it's kind of rough reality. But that verges on fantasy. All those things are mixed together, I think. But they start, if we're going even further back with the spirituals and even beyond that, with African song mm-hmm. and its being banned. And mm-hmm. it's the ways that people worked around that to protest, to provide, and to provide outlets and to express their beliefs, mm-hmm. which were about a kind of liberation theology often in the spirituals. They were Mm -hmm. coded, of course, uh, forms of escape, swing low, sweet chariots, you know, there's a few less people in the field Mm -hmm. the next day, right? But it's also a way of saying, Pharaoh doesn't end so well. There's retribution afoot, and that there is a higher justice being meted out. Yeah. So, it's interesting,
0: also, because the history of African-American visual art didn't have that cover. So the history of African-American visual art could not sustain a survival during a time in which lives were at stake. And so you couldn't visualize hmm. that stuff. Couldn't
1: so- t- or we can't visualize the way that they visualize it. <laughs> Correct. We to so have argument. Correct. It's too early for argument. <laughs> but uh, David Drake, Dave the Potter, as he sometimes was called. You know, I think he is a great example of how in plain sight, people hid in plain sight. And I think they use mm-hmm. forms and folk ways and food ways. And, you know, like it isn't mm-hmm. just the pot. It's the pot they made for themselves on the side, the face jugs mm-hmm. that were made from the Edgefield Potters, of which Dave was one, which scholars now think was, you know, the private pots, these, you know, sort of mm-hmm. hideous, quote unquote, faces that are, you know, masks or they're they're scaring off spirits, but they're also mm-hmm. like, this is mine you know, it's like wearing a skull or something, you know, it's like a a warding off, but it's also, it's like, you're not going to look too closely as what's in this jug of mine. I do take your point though, that visual art has a different risk Uh, in a world which bans (laughs) expression, which doesn't sound that far away from where we are now. uh, (laughs) um, We had to come up with different ways of doing so. And, you know, you can stop uh, people from not expressing themselves maybe not at all or not very long or mm-hmm. not completely but the other thing mm-hmm. that i think you see is the ways that in my experience those arts are not singular mm-hmm. you know poets were always novelists and playwrights you know african american studies yeah. is multidisciplinary by nature absolutely but let's let's talk about that is, yeah. that visual art <laughs> let's talk about the the seen and the
0: unseen You know, Dave the Potter, it's utilitarian, coming from histories of of making that descend across the Atlantic. So they land here. They have a use value, right, in terms of the everydayness of the object, but they have that other presence as well, right? A sort of recognition. When one looks at the object, the object recognizes the seer to a certain degree or affirms the seer. And so the idea of visual art, art for art's sake, no, no, this is something that has a deep memory to it. Yeah. You know, Much like the blues, it's about survival and the thing you make recognizes you as well.
1: Well, and I think also you had to be good at it. Mm -hmm. That's why they both embrace but also resist study in some way because the blues is good time music. You're supposed to dance to it if it's not entertaining in some way. If you don't laugh a little bit or move a little bit or have some transformation, Mm -hmm. you've not done it. And so to me, that's the standard to say then that like, say, other forms of abstract expressionism say, don't need to have Mm. something that they do. I don't think is true. I think they do. The art that Mm. I love does move us and transforms us in some way, even if its utility isn't as obvious or isn't as stressed traditionally in sort of European versions of the story. But I think we're at a moment... That we're starting to understand that there was this not only huge Black contribution to that, but also the ways that Mm -hmm. we might be asking different questions now of some of the same work that moved us in different ways.
0: Mm -hmm. Because we need it differently, maybe. So how do we understand the lineages of the kinds of art forms that helped us to survive or give us voice or and give us voice? And how do those things Transform or continue into a future where they're also
1: as useful as they used to be? That's a big question, man. (laughs) I like it. We're in it. We're in it today. I'm back to the right person. I mean, I think there's, you know, we need all the voices. That's how I think about it. You know what I mean? And not one place can do all of that. But I'm happy, for instance, that our two institutions, the National Museum of African American History and Culture and the Getty, are working together to help us think together about. African-American lives and images uh, with the Johnson Publishing Company Archive, Mm -hmm. which, of course, the Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, and the MacArthur also helped to secure. And it's such a wonderful gift to the world. And I think it's really important Mm -hmm. as we digitize it together and it's slowly coming online. Mm -hmm. But it's four and a half million images, most of which are unseen and doesn't count the audiovisual material, all that. The fashion fair, uh, which I remember my mom having fashion fair stuff mm-hmm. as, a, as a kid, and those ebony jet legacies, we don't know what the 28th mm-hmm. century was, you know, especially for black folks. Yeah. And so yeah. to see that past anew and to see the way that that's going to change the future and why we might need it now, as you so eloquently put it, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. But I think it's going to take institutions who are invested in this to really go deep and to think mm-hmm. big. And not to do patchworky kind of band-aids, but rather mm-hmm. to reinvest in not only seeing the past anew, but also finding a different future together. And I see that in practical ways. It's not like a vague thing to me. I see it daily in the ways we're making choices. We have Afrofuturism show up right now, you know, but it isn't mm-hmm. just about right now. It's about extending and reorganizing and rethinking what... Afrofuturism means and that Mm -hmm. there's things that were Afrofuturist before that term existed Benjamin Banneker for instance Mm -hmm. his almanacs his his uh, (laughs) surveying DC Mm -hmm. the way he's reaching from the earth of DC where I'm sitting now to the stars and making those kind of connections that's what we have to do collectively individually and institutionally.
0: Yeah, in many ways, Afrofuturism is an acknowledgement of the expanded consciousness and intellectual imagination of, let's say, Benjamin Banneker. You know, to say that is the future, but that was also his present at the same time. So it's not out there talking about Star Wars or something. It's, It's about someone with a broad capacity to bring a certain kind of insight into the world through his objects, through his city planning and things like that, that people didn't expect it from him in the first place.
1: That's right. If you came and did an almanac today, people would be like, what, what's what's LaRa doing with an almanac right now? You know what I mean? But imagine <laughs> right. it being 1790 something and you're like, you know what, I'm printing this sucker right now. You know, I'm I'm saying what the earth and the stars have to say to me. And it was ever mm-hmm. thus though, you know, we trace it back into African forms of cosmology and astronomy, and that goes all the way to astronauts. And, you know, one Mm -hmm. of the most powerful Mm -hmm. things, as you know, is Trayvon Martin's flight suit, which is in the Mm -hmm. exhibition because he wanted to be an astronaut. He wanted to be an aviator Mm -hmm. um, and went to space camp. And to see that and his name written across it, which I hadn't quite realized was on there, seeing it in the case Mm -hmm. next to Lieutenant Uhura, Michelle Nichols' uniform from Star Trek, tells us about the dreams that she inspired and the dreams cut short with Trayvon Martin. And so I think that complication of Afrofuturism mm-hmm. is at once a escape. It also is a kind of escapism. Mm-hmm. These are two different things, I would say. But it's also a critique, mm-hmm. right, of a world where you have to be from Mars like Sun Ra, or you got to think about uh, the mothership taking us away, you know.
0: I used to teach
1: Black Studies, and I used to you show. You still him, are, brother. You uniform. still are. You, you still out here. You doing the uh, the Lord's work out here, man. Don't don't, don't say you're not teaching no more.
0: <laughs> well, well, I'm in the tradition of the lineage we're talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, And my students would see Trayvon Martin in his spacesuit. It, it spoke many things. It spoke of two parents who actually may have not been together, but they invested. In their child to send him funds, an emotional reality they had to come to terms with, to send him to that camp. And so he was a manifestation of not only his own imagination, but his parents' imagination
1: for him and who they allowed him the space to think he could imagine to be. That's right. And he had other inspirations. And I think that's so important in this moment when we forget. We can forget too much the humanity of our fellow humans. And too often, you know, I think what that does is people start trying to argue humanity. Black people are human. Well, Well, that's a given. Let's go from something else. Let's go to the other places we're talking about and talk about the richness of that imagination rather than the possibility of humanity, which I think is, you know, indisputable. And I think what I love about visual art is it approaches you in a different way than music. You know, music is temporal, which is one of its wonderful things, but it also can feel like it vanishes though. You carry it with you. I think, you know, you carry a poem in your body, but something visual and this moment of finally recognition of African American artists is really important because it names this thing that was always there. We know, but also, isn't a particular moment of renaissance let's say and so how do we kind of understand that because we've had other renaissances that people have forgotten about there's the ones we talk about the harlem renaissance and you and i lived in harlem uh, when we were both in new york and you know Mm. that place is a visual feast right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and and yeah, art, yeah, visual art, yeah. you, you would never go to Harlem and so say, there ain't no visual art in Harlem. You know, you'd be like, uh, listen, you uh-huh. know, you'd be in a lecture uh, from the little man, a librarian, the archivist <laughs> who's just, just sitting there in the audience, you know, quietly listening. You yeah. know what I mean? And I think that's what's important is that rich legacy that we're both talking about. And people
0: have to redefine or expand what their definition of art is to see everyday beauty and to see the the little things, to see how people do things artfully. And so when we see the littlest things sometimes in places like Harlem, the littlest gestures or some verbal uh, whip, something, it can be traced to a larger, larger reality. But to say it quickly and succinctly and with an impact, with a
1: performativity, is art. Absolutely. I mean, that's why um, Black Twitter, I think, is still undefeated, even when, you know, because there'll be a moment and then it, like, comes back to life again, even just when you think you might not be hearing from it as much or differently. Like, if you did the meme counter of, of the you know, Crying Jordan or this or that, that uh, memes are really powerful.
0: You know, I want to go back to this conversation about music having a bodily effect. If I think about contemporary art, I think of someone like Mark Bradford or Taquasi Dyson, and I feel there's a visceral reality when you see their work, and that it's bodily, that something that you take in through your eyes, but your body processes it because it doesn't give you all its knowing Mm. at once, but it does translate Mm. or put before you its power in terms of scale, in terms of how the, the handling of it.
1: Well, I don't need to say anything. You said it exactly right. (laughs) But we have a a Dyson in the collection, and I was looking at it yesterday. It is a piece. It's called I Can't Breathe. That just deepens and deepens the more I look at it, you know, and it does have those layers Mm -hmm. you're talking about. And mystery, I think that's some of what you're saying, is I think those artists and all the artists I admire, they have an element of mystery to them you know you could call it beauty too you could call it transformation you could call it bodiliness as you did i also think in those specific cases radford and dice scale is really important and they work on a scale that it isn't minimalist in the size sense it really is about those layers and the feeling of a poster or a billboard or an obelisk or a silo or a, a landmass Or the soul, you know, and I think all those Mm -hmm. kind of things, it's interested in making you reflect on and the environmental aspects of it, I would also argue are there.
0: William T. Williams once said to me um, in front of one of his paintings that there's a body to body relationship there, that the scale, right, does matter in terms of one's interpretation and feeling for The thing in front of it, the work in front of it, but also the ways in which visual art and in terms of music, the style, how style can cloak, let's say, one's, how style can give an artist a way of being in the world that doesn't give everything. Hmm. It gives very poignant things, but it doesn't give everything. Like Miles Davis skipping over notes and getting right to the succinct spot where he needs to be. Sure, sure. It's very close to a painter's handling.
1: Yeah, that's right. I was in the gray album writing about Charlie Parker and I, I was really trying to understand what I ended up calling plenty, you know, and the way that Charlie Parker's plenty is really important, but we also have to think about exactly what we're saying, that silence, you know, someone once asked me the themes of my work and my best answer was music, silence, and noise, you know, and to me those things aren't necessarily in that order and they're in different permutations in different work, but I feel like it's there. Mm -hmm. I'm also really interested in, and especially now in the museum, in the way that we tell stories. And I think what the museum has done incredibly well is tell the story and tell a number of stories. And not always, and in fact, recurringly, not stories you may have heard. And even Mm -hmm. a story you thought you knew, they're going to tell you the full truth of it, which nine times out of ten, you don't know the full story. And that historical Mm -hmm. depth, that research, that's what draws me there and makes me excited. Because I discover something new every day. Case in point. We were doing Afrofuturism. It was about to open. And I was down in the history galleries, which, as you know, we were five floors above ground and five floors below ground. So I'm at the very bottom of the museum looking through the part that's so powerful, looking at the history of slavery and how it leads to modernity. It funds it. Mm-hmm. Once you start to grapple with that, it, it's hard to to reckon with. And I look over and there's something I also wrote about in the gram, which is a cosmogram. that An enslaved person had made with beads. They'd carried this African cosmology with them. And they had made it with beads and arranged it. And luckily, whoever had discovered it knew what they were looking at. And I just think about mm-hmm. that so much that this was... A lot of what we're talking about something someone carried on their person it was intimate and they made this thing that was probably private probably shared with their loved ones but beyond that mm-hmm. making it was the thing right did mm-hmm. it need to be seen by everyone yes i think the people who saw it you need to be seen by but it had to be visualized it had to be rendered and that's mm-hmm. so powerful to me because it's afrofuturist but it's also spiritual and artistic and combining all the things. Mm -hmm. It's of use because it had to be done. And just because we don't know the artist, the person of faith, the individual who made it doesn't mean there wasn't that person, but also it speaks Mm -hmm. to a community's need. And I think that's what's really important to tell as a story. You know, it isn't just telling the famous stories of now famous people. It's not about firsts. Mm -hmm. It's about community and collaboration, and cosmology. Yeah. Well, you know, things that emerge from the
0: Black interior, I think, have an inherent value. All of that emerges from an interiority that need not be public, but it has an inherent value to the maker and those who who see.
1: Sure. The fact that it was hidden in plain sight, let's say, is important to note. Mm -hmm. They had to hide it, but they also had to make it. And I think... Mm -hmm we're in a time, especially where I didn't see it, so it must not have existed, you know? And so we also have to interrogate the ways that things might be mysterious to us, too.
0: When I think about the Johnson Publishing Company archive, how do we think through that? How do we think through that 4.58 million images and really capture some of what we've forgotten? And how do we actually think about the kind of fortitude it took for John H. Johnson and Eunice Johnson to hold that company together, how can we take care of it in a way that they took care of? That's it? right. How can we think about it in a generative way that in some way can approach how they understood their um, their company or what it meant to the black community in the age of
1: segregation? Yeah. Or the age of, let's call it revolution. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because mm-hmm. for me, I know I um, grew up seeing on the end table on the coffee table saw it in the barbershop on the newsstand and that reflection let's call it was so key in all these eras Mm -hmm. you know and Mm -hmm. i think that's what we're going to be seeing and sorting as a kind of mirror so i think that's really exciting but i also think as you know there's many many collections within that collection i think this is true of most collections Mm -hmm. but it's going to be an exciting future who can see into it in ways that you and I can only hope to, but also that, you know, we hope to help. And I I think that's, Mm -hmm. what's exciting to me about archives in general is they kind of wait for you to be ready for them. You know, they're there, you know? And um, Mm -hmm. so I think it's the real right moment to be doing this work and helping picture what these pictures are. Mm -hmm. The hiddenness hasn't really ended in some sense, even in this moment of, black popular culture and popular culture being so black. But again, it was ever thus. The first popular culture in America is blackface. And so that mm-hmm. kind of isn't black, about black people, but it is about an idea mm-hmm. of blackness, you know? And that's mm-hmm. the conflation. I think that's the thing we're still wrestling with is people sometimes mistake the image for the person. And the image is often yeah, crafted yeah. not by the person.
0: Yeah. I would show my students Al Jolson, the jazz singer, and they didn't know what to do with it.
1: <laughs> they were offended, but they were so in shock. Like, it was just, it was just surreal, sure. you know? I mean, I, I had a student once, a grad student, say that uh, another professor had told her that blackface had ended, like, in the 19th century. So, you know, Mm -hmm. like, I was like, uh, no, at the break, I went and got (laughs) to my office and pulled off, you know, images Mm -hmm. of Judy Garland in blackface, Fred Astaire, Mm -hmm. whatever, whoever you can think of, it was a rite of passage Mm -hmm. in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And apparently every Halloween, uh, it it gets another rite of passage for some folks still, you know, so uh, we're we're still in it. We're still in a lot of these things. These stories or, or moments are still ongoing.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I have one more question, Kevin. What are you looking forward to in, in uh, your work, either your poetry or through NIMAC? What are you looking forward to?
1: That's the biggest question. I mean, I think the museum is, you know, we're over 100 years in the, the seeking, you know, when black veterans in 1915 came and petitioned for a monument on the mall. Mm-hmm. What I find is that we're really telling these stories, Afrofuturism, or before that, we had a show called Make of the Promises about Reconstruction that connect to those legacies and connect to now and helping Mm -hmm. people to understand what we call living history and the way that living history is tied to Mm -hmm. the past and that we're still in that long legacy. And how do we wrestle with it in good and bad ways? And for me personally, you know, I'm always writing through music i'm writing through moments but i'm finishing a book and starting to publish some of the poems now that sort of refract dante and refract sort of these experiences of loss through that framework of heaven hell and purgatory which also speak to these kind of cosmologies we've been talking about you know they aren't simply mm-hmm. dantean they're the way that you know growing up in an ame church or and my mom was Uh, raised Baptist and my father was raised Catholic, that there are these kind of imprinted stories that are African-American, but also have this cosmic origin that I I also try to understand through African cosmologies like we're talking about. And so trying to grapple with that is what I'm interested in personally. Mm -hmm. But um, what's nice is being at a museum that's thinking about that publicly
0: With that, thank you, Kevin Young, for speaking with me today.
1: Thanks, Leran. Always good to see you. Same here. This
0: episode was produced by Zoe Goldman, with audio production by Gideon Brower, and mixing by Mike Dodge-Weiskopf. Our theme music comes from The Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003 and is licensed with permission from Hindon Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu podcasts. And if you have a question, write to us at podcasts@Getty.edu. at getty.edu. Thanks for listening.